Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Starting in uh, Genesis chapter 9. This is the, a segment of the book of Genesis that occurs right after the flood has come, destroyed the earth and receded, and God interacts with Noah and his family, speaking the truth of what God wants for society, for men, in civil lives together. Hear the word of God from Genesis 9. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. May God bless the reading of his authoritative and inspired word. You may be seated. When I was a kid, my family and I would often travel up to Rowan County, north of Charlotte, to visit my aunt and my uncle who lived in what's called Faith, North Carolina, outside of Salisbury. Their names were Uncle Plato and Aunt Babe. That's right, that's their names, Uncle Plato and Aunt Babe, those classic southern nicknames. And um, one of my favorite memories would be that my cousins and I would go out for walks in, on the property and in the woods of my, my aunt and uncle's uh, kind of property, and we would walk around and we would see all kinds of nature. One time we caught a, an injured uh, red-tailed hawk and took it to the raptor center. I mean, other times we caught, we'd find little arrowheads, like we're talking real arrowheads made by real Indians hundreds of years ago. It was pretty cool in that sense. One time we were out on a pleasant walk, it was a beautiful day, like a fall day, like we're having these day at this time of, of the year, and we were walking through the woods, and it was just so pleasant, the, the squirrels, the birds, everything, we were enjoying the walk with my Uncle Plato, and, and as we were walking, uh, he suddenly stops, he, he actually reaches into his pocket, he pulls out a, a sock, and then out of the sock he pulls out a gun looks at the ground and goes, BAM! And you know, we're having this really pleasant walk and all this happens like that. And we're like, whoa, what just happened? Well, on the ground was a snake. A decent-sized copperhead. And uh, we were literally walking right by the thing. He saw it and he took it out. And it was a kind of a shocking thing, you know. At first you're like, oh, this is such a pleasant day and BAM! <laughs> And that's sometimes how uh, you can experience life, is that you're experiencing um, the pleasantries of life and experiencing the goodness of life, and all of a sudden there's a shocking moment of what amounted to protective justice going on from my uncle. Later on, I appreciated what he had done to protect us from that snake. 
that was literally right beside us, and uh, he took care of us in that way. But today, guys, I want to talk about how God uh, takes care of us in what amounts to protective justice, protective justice that comes uh, in a unique way. And this is an important ethical concept that's even being talked about in our time, in our culture, in how we treat criminals who do violent crimes, and as we'll talk about at the end of our time, even how we handle violent nations and peoples who attack other peoples. We're going to talk about capital punishment and war today. And so that brings us to the question, how exactly are we as Christians to respond to violent crimes, to violence that goes on around us, uh, with people, real things, and the threatening of life? How should we respond to that as Christians in our ethic, given what God and his word says? Well, we're going to go at it again, just like we've been doing the last few weeks in three ways. We're going to go at it with truth, with grace, and with love. We're going to talk about how these three apply to this question of how we interact with the violent in our time and in our place. Now, to get at the truth, we're going to first look at um, a context of where this uh, truth uh, about how we handle violence comes out in Genesis 9. Genesis 9 is uh, all about, of course, Noah after the fall and how God reestablishes society in what we call the covenant of common grace with him and with his family. Now, you might recall in the chapters before this, God has sent a terrible flood to destroy the world. Why did he send the flood to destroy the world? Well, if you go back to further chapters prior, in chapters 4 and chapters 5, we find out that the world is actually a very violent place, even sexually uh, immoral to some terrible degrees. And as a result, God sends the flood to restart the world, if you will, in a hard restart. The flood, if you will, was a historic and divine judgment ordeal. And judgment ordeals in Scripture, like the flood, are meant to both condemn the guilty and clear the innocent, i.e., in this case, the only innocent man in the world and his, and his family under him, Noah. So, chapter 9 is all about God reestablishing humanity in the world and restarting in a hard reset what amounts to a new creation, a restart. And how does he do that? What does God say in the process of that? Well, look at verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons, said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Hey, where have we heard that before if you've read Genesis? If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, you'll see those very words given to Adam as a way to uh, uh, a call to follow God in the midst of uh, the ruling of creation. And uh, this is exactly what God is doing in our midst. He's recreating the world, so to speak, in a new sense. And so what does he do? He gives, he gives Noah, and really what's meant to be uh, for every human being after Noah, including his own family, what's called another cultural mandate. Living out, all of us, all human beings, whether they're Christian or not, followers of Yahweh or not, living out under this mandate to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In verse 2 of our text, he goes on to talk about how uh, uh, all the animals and creatures of the world would have fear of men uh, and would have a fear uh, so that God would deliver them over to us. And that, in that sense, he means ruling over all the creatures of the world with this latent fear in them, of course, in a broken world as well. 
in verse 3, God provides resources and food for man. So you've got kind of the call to the cultural mandate. You've got uh, the ruling sense over all the creatures of the world, even God providing food and resources for, for Noah and his family to live in this life. And again, all this is given in what's called the covenant of common grace. But in all of this, there is this strange caveat that kind of stands out and is very different than the original covenant of creation that was given to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And it shows up in verse 4 and 5. And look at what it says. It says, after it says, I've given you kind of this call to a cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, after I've given you food, after I've given you rulership over all the animals of the world, listen to this, you shall not eat flesh with its life, in verse 4, that is, its blood. And then in verse 5, and for your lifeblood I'll require a reckoning. For every beast I'll require, and for man from his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. So here it is. This is kind of shocking in light of all that's going on. Uh, God actually says that you shall not eat the blood of animals when you eat animals. When you eat your prime rib, uh, when you eat your chicken or your beef or whatever you're eating, you shall not eat the life itself. And why does he say that? Because of it represents life itself. Blood is a representation of life. That we are not to have contempt for life in how we eat and even kill. Indeed, this sense of protecting the blood, even of animals as we eat, uh, has a sense of, of pr promoting and preserving respect for life, value of life, even among the animals. And so verse 5 is kind of shocking too, in that it actually tells us that this is not only true with the animals, but there will be a lifeblood reckoning with men as well. He says that for individual men who might be killed, there will be a reckoning, a settling of a debt or account. That's the language of justice. What is he saying in this text then? Well, he's saying that a man's life, uh, if it is taken, when it is taken by another man, justice is required, life for life. In fact, if you look at verse 6, it kind of elucidates on this and explains. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. There it is, reaffirming what we would call capital punishment. So he's talking, uh, when he's talking about the taking of life from a man to a man, he's talking about here in particular cold-blooded murder. First-degree murder, if you want to use the language of today's law in America where there is willful intent to kill prior to actually killing. And he tells us the reason why this is so wrong. It's because, according to our text in verse 6, man, every human being, it doesn't matter what their race or their creed or their, even their religion is, every human being has dignity because of the image of God, has value because of the image of God. This is the reason for capital punishment. You see, the covenant of Noah is fundamentally different than the covenant of Adam in that it adds this segment about taking life for life in justice over murder. And why is that? Well, from Adam to Noah, something happened, the fall. 
And with that fall, and particularly with Satan's influence, violence came into the world. Real violence came into the world so that in chapter 4, the very first family, Adam and Eve with their boys, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel out of jealousy in premeditated murder. And the result is violence enters into the world in the taking of life. This violence, guys, got so bad between Adam and Noah that a guy named Lamech, who's several generations down from Adam, says this in chapter 4 of Genesis, I have killed a man for wounding me. And he goes on to say, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The language being there, like, you bump into me, man, I'll take you out. You're dead. It's this violent talk that precedes what really reveals what's in the heart of the people of the time and precedes what would be violence among all men. So in a post-Cain and Abel world, with super violent tendencies, God restarted the world with a flood, and he did it to bring justice to bring justice in the world. In fact, I would submit to you today that God is a just God. And as much as we love to hear about his gentleness and his uh, love and his kindness, you must remember God is also very just. He wants to set things right. Now, some of them may say, what about this justice thing? I mean, don't we overblow this thing sometimes? And why does God react so strongly to violence, uh, such as floods and, and other ways we'll talk about? I mean, why can't we all just get along with each other? Well, the short answer of Scripture is that's exactly what they probably said between Adam and Noah. Why can't we all just get along? It's because they didn't understand what's in the heart of men, that every inclination of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil all the time. That left to our own devices, there is a violence in every one of us that if left to its own devices can go some, some very bad places. That's why uh, also God uh, calls us to be wise about violence in our world. I'll tell you what, if you often think of why, is there, why do we talk so much about justice, I would encourage you to think about this. What if something happened to you and your family that was violent? What if something happened to you and your family where you long for justice? I'll tell you a story, a personal story for myself, for my family. Back in 1998, my niece, my 12-year-old niece, in a very public uh, publicized all over the television, even nationally uh, um, uh, syndicated columns had things about it. She was kidnapped from a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. A man who was, whose parents were members at this church kidnapped her, took her in a van, tied up, taped up to a place and did terrible things to her. He did not kill her. But he left her on the side of a road in Lincoln County where some folks who were driving by found her tied up and taped up. 
We were scared for a few hours one Sunday afternoon on Palm Sunday in 1998 about what was going to happen to my niece. We were praying for God's mercy, and God had mercy. Her life was spared. They caught the guy. They apprehended him, and he was prosecuted, and the, the evidence was overwhelming against him. He was sent to prison. I don't wish that he die because he uh, actually... Um, is in prison for life, he'll never get out. And he didn't kill my, my niece. But I'll tell you what, if something like that happened to you, you would all of a sudden want justice. You would want justice as a part of your life. You want justice to be a part of the rhythm of our world. I've never wanted it more. Justice is an important piece of how we do life together in community. And that's what this whole thing is about. It's about how God wants to bring justice in a world and to a society and how we treat each other, especially when there's violence involved. God has created an economy where if there is a wrong done, there must be something done to take care of that wrong. A price must be paid. And that's especially true with radical injustices such as first-degree murder, such as men with guns who walk into schools and kill other kids and teachers. Genesis 9 says that God requires life for life, especially in a first-degree premeditated murder. That is what capital punishment is. Now, let me be clear. What I'm talking about today, nobody enjoys or nobody likes to actually uh, pursue this. Even the people who are law people don't enjoy this stuff. But it is a necessary part of any good society according to God. Let me summarize some key truths about this call to justice in the face of severe personal violence. First, it's still very true that thou shalt not kill is in effect. In fact, thou shalt not kill still means that we shall preserve life. But someone would say, how can you kill and preserve life at the same time? The fact of the matter is a violent, premeditating person is the, one of the most dangerous people there is. And violence is sometimes necessary to arrest, to restrain, to preserve the li- uh, pr- to, to take out someone to preserve the life of others. Someone may say, why not put them in jail for life? Well, I would suggest to you that those same premeditated uh, people, more often than not, not always, but more often than not, will also be premeditating and violent even in prison. Have you ever thought that the people in the penal system are actually, and officers of the law are actually in danger too in the penal system, even fellow inmates? So really, we must take into account the reality of people being in danger. The second principle that I would highlight is that by man shall blood blood be shed, uh, is is this, is it's talking about, in verse 6, that by man shall blood be shed, is talking about retributive justice. Retributive justice is to be given for the most severe crimes. 
Now, we do believe in restorative justice. Restorative justice, you put them in jail, you, you teach them, you give them things, uh, you give a criminal a time to work out their lives and a whole host of things so that hopefully they can get out and go back into society. But there are some crimes that require retributive justice. Now, let me be clear about retributive justice. First, retributive justice also has a biblical restraint itself. In the Bible, the Bible talks about when retributive justice is involved, it talks about lex talionis. Have you ever heard of that? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, Another way to say it is the punishment fits the crime. In other words, retributive justice is you give justice that fits what's done. No more, no less. And this is the key in carrying out justice. There must be proportionality in a response. Moreover, and this is just as important, and we're going to really kind of highlight this, retributive justice, according to God's word, must be carried out not by you and me as individuals, but by civil authorities empowered and uh, into offices that carry out this justice. Genesis 9 says plainly, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning. In other words, God is establishing here in this text civil government among men to carry out justice. This is where government and law is formally established in Scripture over all peoples. And why do we do that? To protect lives fundamentally to protect people's lives. Now, at this point, as I'm talking about taking life to protect lives, some of may say, whoa, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, turn the other cheek. Uh, and he even talks about this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth thing, that you're actually to love your enemy and turn the other cheek. And you know what I would say to that? I'd say, absolutely, we should do that. We should obey Jesus' words when it comes to our personal interactions with people. What we need to learn the difference between is between personal justice and what we do with each other individually and God's judgment through civil authorities. There's a difference between the two. When someone does an injustice to us personally, uh, even kill a loved one, we are not to carry out vengeance ourselves. We are to allow the justice system to do that. We hand it over to the authorities. Matthew 5, just so we're clear, is about personal justice. When someone wrongs you personally, you don't carry out justice yourself. Romans 13, however, reaffirms what Genesis 9 is saying regarding civil justice. And how civil authorities carry out justice even in radical issues like murder for us. In fact, Romans 13 talks about the pagan Romans carrying the sword to subdue the wrongdoer. Can you believe that? The pagan Romans, the very ones who were also at the same time as Paul was uh, writing Romans, uh, were persecuting Christians. Nevertheless, God in his sovereignty still saw them as the ones who were given the God-ordained task to carry out justice in a civil way. You know, Paul in Acts 25 even affirms 
this idea of the uh, civil authorities carrying out justice. He's standing before a judge, a king, and he concedes that if he did something wrong in his preaching of the gospel, that his life could indeed end, that he would deserve to die. But he was making a case, I don't deserve to die for, for preaching the gospel to people. So Paul, in other words, endorses and affirms that civil authority gets to do this. So if I could summarize all of what I'm saying here, it's this. To take life for one's own satisfaction is murder upon murder. But to take life in a God-ordained civil justice system is an act of retributive justice that is actually an act on behalf of God, according to Romans 13. Now, the interesting thing about this is uh, very often when we talk about capital punishment, uh, some in our culture might complain that this just seems like vindictiveness and things like that. Well, we affirm that there never should be vengeance or vindictiveness uh, between individuals and those who have done horrible things to them, that the civil authorities should handle that uh, with the blindfold of justice, if you will. Nonetheless, uh, we have to understand that there is something that it really often scares us as even Christians and even non-Christians. That's the idea of God's wrath. This is talking about wrath, and God's wrath in particular coming through temporal authorities. Now, wrath is a scary thought that we like, I just want to talk about the love of God and how good God is and all that stuff. I'm like, amen, hey, let's talk about that. And you've got to wrestle with God has wrath too. In fact, you have wrath. Every time you hear something about ISIS cutting off a head of someone in the Middle East, don't you feel inside this sense of indignation that is totally righteous to respond to that? That's wrath. See, when we're wronged or see a wrong, we all have the sense that the, the wrong must be righted. It must be dealt with. In the same way God has that, except on a holy scale. We struggle with holy wrath. God has it on a holy scale. Well, now, what I've just told you guys is sobering, and I know it, it is a, kind of a wild stuff to think about, but we've got to ask, now, how are we going to find grace in the midst of this? We've talked about truth. How are we going to get to grace in the midst of all this justice? Well, you have to remember some things in order to understand grace in the midst of capital punishment. There is a difference between temporal judgments and eternal mercies. Meaning someone like you and me can experience consequences, even severe consequences, for dire crimes like murder, but still encounter eternal mercies in some cases. A criminal who willingly kills can and sometimes does come to Christ when he hears the gospel, but he still may very much deserve the death penalty. That doesn't mean he can't be with Christ in eternity. And you know why I can say that? Because the thief on the cross was going through a capital punishment when he professed faith in Christ and Jesus promised he'd be with him in paradise. Capital punishment is all over Scripture. And dare I say it, Jesus went through it for us on the cross. Jesus' death was a violent death to pay the penalty for all we deserve in the cumulative and personal effects of our sin on a holy God. In fact, sin is so offensive to God, he requires justice in his economy. 
Sin cannot go unpunished. And so Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, took on our sins for us at the cross and took on the justice of God on himself so that we could have eternal life. Here's what that means. Jesus Christ became the worst adulterer in history on the cross, though he never did it himself. Jesus Christ became the worst liar in history, though he never lied himself. Jesus, on our behalf, became the most angry man in history, though he never had anger that was unrighteous. And yes, Jesus became the worst murderer in history on the cross for you and for me, even though he never harmed a soul. The significance of that has to hit you on what God was doing at the cross with capital punishment for you and for me. And if you own that personally in ourselves, that helps us not only to have compassion on the hurting, but it also helps us understand the justice of God and what he's after. The cross is where Jesus brought us life and forgiveness, but it's also where he began to subdue the world in profound new ways from the inside out. So, that brings us to our final question today. We've talked about truth. We've talked about grace coming through a cross that's capital punishment for us, even for criminals who can know Christ. How can we love in the face of all this? Well, I'd like to suggest in our last minutes here that love comes in two forms or two big categories, if you will. The first is how we love in the issue of capital punishment in the face of that as a people, as the church. The next is how we love in war, which is directly connected to the principles around this issue. So, what does love look like in the case of capital punishment and of war? Well, the first is this. We've got to remember the principle that God allows taking life for life in order to restrain violence, in order to bring justice. So, in light of that, for the capital punishment, the first thing we want to do is remember that we need to um, remember Leslie Newbigin's category for how we interact with the world. Now, two weeks ago, when we talked about abortion, I talked about how Newbigin says we need to learn how to be for the world against the world. That we do things like uh, crisis pregnancy centers in order to be subversive in our culture. But there's another way. You've got to be against the world for the world. You've got to resist evil and violence in order to be for the goodness of the world. And how do we do that in our time? Well, I would suggest to you that we need in our culture more Christian attorneys, lawmakers. We need more judges who have a Christian worldview to promote life-protecting life. We need more police officers, and we got some in our midst. God bless you guys for what you do. We need more law enforcement who have Christian principles that can make a difference protecting life and life with uh, life. 1 Timothy 2 says we can also pray 
for our leaders. And we can pray for them not only that they would learn justice and righteousness and long for truth that's transcendent of even the latest cultural fad, we can pray, and this is what First Timothy 2 is kind of wild. It says this, pray for these kings and others in positions of influence in government who may not be Christians. Why? So we can be good citizens. That's why. So we can actually be submissive appropriately to laws of the land that protect life and encourage life. Another application is we have to beware of the misuse of capital punishment. For all the resistance to it in our day, there have been times in history, which can happen even in our, in our country, where uh, uh, capital punishment is misused. That is, people are killed for next to nothing. There have been times in history where you could be killed for stealing. Or you could be killed, or, or rather put to death, uh, by the civil authorities for saying something against the king. We have to promote due process in civil justice and appropriate a sense of due process so that people are indeed proven guilty. We should even encourage appeals so that people can work through the system and we can make sure that if someone is, is a charge or actually uh, convicted uh, for the death penalty, that there is real grounds for doing it. So that's capital punishment in a few simple applications. But, but how does this apply to war? Well, it's the same idea. Life for life. When people are being oppressed and even killed, as on a large scale with large numbers of people, even by nations and people groups like ISIS maybe, capital punishment through war applies. War is, if you will, meant to be in Scripture a form of justice carried out by the state to protect its citizens from harm. We have to take that in mind. God does allow war. Now, there are responses to the whole idea of war. And one extreme response would be the pacifist tradition, which invokes Matthew 5. And there's some good Christians who hold to this view. They say we turn the other cheek in war, and that Christians in general should not be a part of war as soldiers or in the military. However, as we've said, that applies, as Matthew 5 applies, to personal relationships, not civil actions if you will, not nations and peoples. Moreover, almost every Christian pacifist movement in history inevitably changes their minds when they are unjustly treated or killed. The other extreme that you can look at regarding war is what's called holy war, and you're familiar with that in our time. It's what the Muslims call jihad, the establishment of some Tradition, the establishment of some power in the name of God. And we've seen it again through Al-Qaeda and a host of other things. Now, I've got to tell you, it's true that in the Old Testament, Israel carried out a holy war upon the Canaanites. We as Christians would say that that was a unique war one time in history and was not meant to be repeated in the name of God in the rest of history. And I'm talking about in actual armies, and in actual uh, act, uh, uh, military actions. Indeed, 
I would tell you that if you look at the Canaanite history, what you'll find is that God used Israel as an instrument of judgment, as a nation against the evil, wicked Canaanites. And they were not nice people. Do not think that they were just innocent there in Canaan. (laughs) No. The irony is, you ready for this? Later on in biblical history, God raises up other nations like Assyria and Babylon as whole people to carry out war against Israel and Judah because of their wickedness and kicks them out of the land. In other words, God has used war in history through even pagan nations against his own people as a source of discipline and temporal judgment. The kind of war that we support as a people is what's called just war. And we don't support it because we love it, because who really loves war? Nobody loves war. It's what is necessary when it comes to war. We participate in wars that are morally justified, and there are three criteria for morally justified wars, and here they are. First is war has to be done by a legitimate authority, declared by a legitimate authority, such as a government. It cannot be declared by an individual. Second, war should be carried out for just reasons. You have to go to, you go to war because there's a real reason to do it. A legit and just reason to do it. And third, there must be right intent in carrying out the war. Let me explain that. This came from Augustine. It's this whole idea, whole idea that you must have an intent to actually do good in the long run in your war and to get rid of evil in the process. So there's a real good intent. You see, justice on a large scale is what war actually is. Now, how does love apply to this? <laughs> Ooh, man, that's a tough one. Well, love can look like this. A nation subduing a nation for a larger and very real and palpable good is love. I think of the Allies in World War II as a classic example of overcoming a terribly wicked Nazi regime in World War II. They brought peace to a violent, chaotic world. And that's why we support soldiers as they go to war for just causes and with just means and just purposes. In the face of violent men, we need capital punishment and war. And again, rare circumstances, but be it, be it as it may, have it there nonetheless for justice in our world. Now, what's the gospel in light of all this? <laughs> How do we take what has been said here today from Scripture in Genesis 9, Romans 13? How do we apply it? Well, you've got to remember, the fundamental truth for us as Christians is this. In the end, Christ is our defender. Christ is our warrior. Christ is the final and just judge. We don't carry out personal vengeance ourselves when we're, we're poorly or violently treated. We wait on the Lord as our vindicator. He died for our sins so we could even be freed from choosing a violent path with our words, with our actions, with our talk to the hand. And Christ is ruling and providing things even right now like the state. The state 
where he communicates his common grace through justice against evildoers. And here's the big one. With all that we've encountered in our lives with hurts from people or even what we hear uh, and are offended by and are hurt by even in some cases uh, with violence in our world and in our nation, there is always a sense of longing that we want final justice, don't we? Somebody to get it right. Somebody to bring it to an end so that we can finally stop saying, How long, O Lord? And the great news of the gospel is Jesus will come back as the final judge. Jesus will come back and bring justice on a scale unimaginable and in beauty to bring a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more war. There is no more pain and sorrow and tears. There is true peace according to God's great plan. In the meantime, he uses civil authorities to restrain evil. And he even has the Holy Spirit in us so that when we are wronged and hurt, we can learn to forgive, we can learn to love even those who have hurt us significantly. We're different in that way. We're different in how we handle hurts. We're different in how we handle violence. And we wait on the Lord to carry out his justice. So as you wait on the Lord, remember this. His grace really is enough. His grace is really enough to sustain us for years to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and as we pray and talk about this very difficult subject, we ask you to open our hearts to how we can live as just people, how we can promote justice, and yet do it with hearts of grace that have experienced your power, your forgiveness, and that we can give grace when appropriate, even when people don't deserve it. Thank you for your kindness, and we pray that your grace would be sufficient for us as we endure a world where there is violence, sometimes senseless violence from men. Give us the grace to pray how long, waiting for the day when you will bring life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.